Good morning, church. It's exciting to see these young families uh, here in our church, and in particular on a, on a Mother's Day. I just want to pause and honor all of our moms today. You, you got a little flower when you came in. We're just thankful for moms in our lives. We did a little Mother's Day celebration yesterday for mom with all five kids when they actually can be in one spot at the same time. It's pretty miraculous. So we did it brunch yesterday and, and celebrated uh, mom and our household. Uh, and just want to make sure we have a moment to just thank God for you all and honor you all in the midst of this. Uh, as well, uh, sometimes Mother's Day can be kind of a difficult season, and we just want to acknowledge that some people have lost their moms in the midst of this season, and we grieve with you, and some uh, wanted to be moms, and they haven't been able to, and so this can be a real difficult season uh, for them as well, and just want to acknowledge those who are grieving in this season uh, because of that, but honoring moms and, and just women in general and the, the fact that God created men and women in his image and they're a unique part of what he's doing here in our world. I also want to give you a little update. I've been talking a little bit with Brandon and Seth as they've been gone. I was texting with them this morning. Uh, and if you haven't heard, Brandon and Seth, you know, are in Rwanda. Uh, and just giving me a little update. So he got to preach. And if you're not familiar with our involvement in Rwanda with African New Life, uh, Austin Oaks helped to uh, fund, like fully fund, a church plant in Rwanda uh, and the building of it. So that whole building was funded by gifts, generous gifts from Austin Oaks Church. That building was completed in this last month. And this last week, Brandon was, uh, had the privilege to preach the first message in that church building with that church in Rwanda. And so a pretty special time for them. Uh, he's going to share more of that as he come back, but he just wanted me to share kind of a neat update with it as well. Uh, there's over 50 kids in that village. Part of what African New Life does is they plant a church in a village to be really a community resource as well as to proclaim the gospel. But then they uh, seek sponsorships for those kids kids for education, for needs, and all those things. And our church has sponsored over 50 kids in that village. And so Brandon got to see and meet a number of those kids that have been sponsored by people here in our church as well. So it's been a pretty amazing trip for him and Seth so far. I know when they come back, they'll have more pictures and share that. But just continue to pray for them as they are there still this coming week. Uh, and keep them in your prayers. It's been a pretty exciting trip overall for them. So hey, I'm the, uh, Chad McCartney. If you're new with us, I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. And we're in the midst of a series we are calling uh, Be the Movement or We Are the Movement. And we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, uh, one of the Gospels uh, that are laid out and talk about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so uh, I'm going to continue with that today. Uh, I just want to take a little moment here to, you know, I thought I'd really come up with something, you know, rich and deep and theologically challenging with, with, for you all today, but I just got to tell you that after the nine o'clock service, I got this little note from a seven-year-old. Her name was Emery, and it says, I love your preaching. Obviously, it wasn't nearly as deep and challenging as I thought because I'm getting encouragement from a seven-year-old. But, hey, I'm feeling good about it at this point. You know, whether you guys like this or not, you know, maybe I should head over to the children's ministry with some of these kids and I could help them out over there. But anyways, it's coming. Hey, so chapter 7 we're going to be in. If you want to open up your Bibles to chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, 
passage will also come up here on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along there. Let's pray and just bow our heads and prepare as we uh, have the privilege of hearing God's word this morning. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege we have in gathering to worship again. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, every person who is gathering with us today, whether they're here with us in person, whether they're joining us online, uh, or they're outside in the courtyard. Thank you for the blessing and privilege of being your church and being able to sing uh, songs and have music that stirs our hearts and our affections for you, uh, but also to hear from your word. And I pray that as we share your word this morning, that your spirit would deepen our love for Jesus and grow our obedience to him in the midst of that. We ask this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember quite distinctly uh, a season in our ministry lives that was uh, incredibly difficult. I'd been a teacher and coach uh, for 10 years and transitioned into ministry. Our first ministry was in Laredo, a border town, and we'd been there for a number of years at this point, uh, and our youngest daughter at this point was facing um, really significant medical issues. Uh, and it was kind of some ongoing things we were having to go through, and it led to a scenario where we had to sell our home and liquidate all the equity we had in our home to cover medical costs and so forth, and it was going to be a little bit of an ongoing stretch for us. So we actually uh, sold our home. We moved to a, a small kind of little dried-up oil town about an hour uh, outside of Laredo, and we were living in a 900-square-foot mobile home uh, with no central air, uh, so the rent could be about $300 a month, and it just really minimized our expenses. And during that two-year period, I was driving an hour in back and forth uh, to the church, and my wife was driving to Houston uh, multiple times, sometimes on a weekly basis, a five-hour trip each way for medical things to Texas Children's. And I just remember as that season went on, uh, kind of coming to a point of going like, Lord, Really? Is this what ministry looks like? Like we've left our careers, we sold our home, we moved, we were equipped, and we're serving in an area of need, and, and like life was just kind of crumbling around us. And it, it was a season of great doubt of are we doing the right thing? Is this really what we should be doing? And my guess is that anyone who's walked with Jesus for any length of time has faced a season of doubt where you've started to wonder, like, is this really what it's all about, Lord? Or is this what you've promised? Or are you really who you said you are? Are you really true to your promises? You know, maybe a, a struggling marriage that's been part of that doubt, maybe a failed marriage in your past, and you wonder, Jesus, like, wh where were you in the midst of this situation? Maybe it was a, a health issue that you went through or a, a situation with one of your children. It can very much be a challenge to parents as they walk through difficult scenarios with their kids. Or maybe it's the unexpected loss of a loved one that completely catches you off guard. And you pause and go, is this really what it looks like to walk with Jesus? Where was he in the midst of these difficult circumstances? Today we're going to look at a passage uh, that reveals doubt, that talks to us about doubt, and answers really two questions. One is, is doubt 
a common reality in the life of a believer? And then secondly, how do we confront doubt when it creeps into our life? Is doubt something that we'll regularly face as believers? And when we do, how do we address it in our lives? I love this story because it's a story about one of the heroes of the Bible, John the Baptist. And and we're going to start in verse 18 of chapter 7. And as you've seen, if you've been with us, Jesus is well into his ministry now. John the Baptist has pre- uh, prepared the way, as he said. Jesus is now ministering. He's been doing lots of different miracles. Our last several messages have shown those different miracles, and he's teaching. People are very aware of who he is and what he's been doing. And in this passage, we're going to see John is in prison. He's been thrown in prison because he spoke to Herod, one of the leaders of that Judean area, uh, about his uh, wrong, horrific marriage that he had with a, someone he was actually related to. It is actually his own brother's wife at one point, and now he's married to her, and John the Baptist spoke up to it, and as a result, Herod threw him in prison. And he's been in prison for a while now. And he's in a, not a prison like what you'd see today. It's a pretty nasty scenario that John is in. And what we see here is as his disciples, John's disciples, are reporting back to him what Jesus is doing, John's starting to wonder, who is this guy? Is it really the one I thought he was? And so we're going to dip into the story right at that point. Verse 18 says this. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So all these miracles and things that Jesus was doing just prior to this, his disciples are bringing to John. And John says, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John seems to be having some doubts here in his life about Jesus. Now, put those things in context. Think about it. John uh, had a miraculous birth told. The angel Gabriel came to his mother and father, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and proclaimed not only his miraculous birth, but also the incredible things he would do in preparing the way for Jesus to come. You know that John heard that story over and over again from his parents. You also know, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, that John was a a cousin to Jesus, that Elizabeth and Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, were related to each other. And guaranteed, they got together at Passovers or various holidays, and you could imagine both moms telling the story, Jesus' miraculous story of Gabriel coming to Mary and proclaiming his miraculous birth. Those were stories that John obviously grew up hearing over and over again. So he's not foreign to who this Jesus is or even his story. And yet even in John's ministry, John proclaimed the very coming of Jesus. He prepared the way. John was the one who physically baptized Jesus. We see that in the gospel. And when he baptized him, he heard The father's words saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John himself pointed Jesus out to his disciples and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had ample opportunity to know exactly who Jesus was. It makes no sense 
that he would suddenly ask a question like this unless he was experiencing some doubt. You see, doubt is a common experience for a follower of Jesus. It happens to every single one of us. In fact, I believe it's recorded here. If Jesus is truly the word of God, he's the ultimate word. He's the living in flesh word of God. These are the words of God that communicate all of his truths. The scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed or is inspired by God. That means every single word that's penned, even if it's penned by the hand of another person, is ultimately inspired in the very truths that Jesus wants us to know. So why would Jesus include a story about John's doubt in the scriptures if he didn't want us to be aware of that? If he thought that doubt was something that we shouldn't talk about or we should never experience as Christians? Why inspire that in here? In fact, you can look at lots of different places. I'll give just a few examples of how common doubt is in the life of followers of Jesus. You remember Peter, one of the disciples, and Peter in Matthew chapter 14, we see this example when they're out in the sea and Peter's walking on the water and he starts sinking and Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? Here's Peter, one of the cornerstones of the disciples. And we'll see that even later on, his doubts as Jesus is being tried and Peter denies knowing Jesus three different times. It was not all that uncommon for them to experience some doubt. You all know Thomas, right? Thomas in John chapter 20. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's how Thomas gets his famous name, Doubting Thomas, because he had doubts as well. In Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 and 17, again, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, or just before he gives the great commission and ascends into heaven, he's gathered with his 11 disciples, so they've seen the resurrection. It says the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I could go on and, and give you a number of different characters, great characters in the Bible like Abraham, the father of the faith in the Old Testament who had significant doubts about God's calling on his life and about the promise of a son who would one day uh, be given to him. Sarah, his wife, had significant doubts and even laughed at the thought that she might have a child one day uh, that would fulfill God's promise. Moses, one of the great figures of the Old Testament, had incredible doubts standing before a burning bush and even seeing God's miracles of God's calling on his life that he could fulfill what was given to him. Or, or there's always Gideon, right? Gideon, like, let me put the fleece down and make the ground wet and keep it dry. Okay, you do that, God. Now make the fleece wet and make the ground dry. Now turn the fleece pink and purple and blue. I mean, he just kept trying over and over and over again and whatever he had asked, God showed him it was true and he continued to doubt. Person after person, the scriptures record, 
of doubts. It's common for all believers. The challenge is we often don't want to talk about it in the church because we think there's something wrong with us when we face times of doubt. But Jesus records these for us to let us know it's part of our journey. So what causes doubts? What are some of the things you face? I want to give you two simple little practical things that often surface doubts in our lives. And I think they're consistent with what we see right here in this passage with John in his situation. The first thing I think that comes out is difficult circumstances. It's quite common in the journey of following Jesus to experience doubt when you face difficult circumstances. It's just going to happen. It could be the experience of failure. Maybe it's a work failure, a school failure, a relationship that you've had, or, or even a ministry failure. Sometimes those can be the most challenging because you think, man, ministry, I'm, I'm doing this for you, God. Why would you not bless and honor this the way that I think, you know, is blessing and honoring it? And you experience a challenging situation in ministry or your ministry, and it's real easy to doubt that Jesus is who he is or he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Sometimes it's a health situation. Maybe a, a personal health scenario that you're facing. Or sometimes even more challenging, the health issue of a family member or a child that you have to walk through as a parent watching that happen and questioning and, and doubting God's goodness and presence in the midst of it. Uh, oftentimes a real common one is a situation of injustice in our lives, it continues to go on unmitigated. You face a scenario, and it could be any number of things, but it's an injustice that continues to be present in your life and it never seems to get resolved. That surfaces doubts. It causes us to wonder where God is in the midst of this, and John, may have wondered the same thing, like, why wasn't Jesus setting him free? Here he'd spent his whole life, he lived in a camel skin or a goat's, you know, this burlap-like sack eating grasshoppers and honey. He'd done everything in his life to serve and prepare the way for Jesus. Now he's thrown in prison, he's been in there for months, and never once does Jesus even visit him, much less set him free. I mean, wasn't it Jesus that actually set in the synagogues? He came to set captives free? John would have known that. He was very well versed in what the Old Testament prophecy said about Jesus. And yet, Jesus never showed up. Difficult circumstances often cause doubts in our lives. The other thing that is very common, and these go hand in hand, is wrong expectations. Oftentimes we experience doubt when our expectations of God collide with the truth about God. We often bring expectations, and most of the Jews did the same thing. The Jews of Jesus' time, they believed the Messiah was more of a political leader, and even though Jesus will embody that, that was the only thing that they saw. That was every truth that they mined out of the Old Testament was those that talked about Jesus coming and, and throwing off the oppression of the world, of all the non-Jewish you know, world that was oppressing Israel. And that's what he was going to do, and he was going to set up his kingdom, and he was going to reign and rule just like the kings of old, like David and Solomon. 
And so when Jesus wasn't doing that, it was kind of like, well, well, is this really him? Like when John's not seeing him doing that, when Jesus is like healing the centurion's servant, like the centurions, that's the Romans, they're the people that are oppressing us and Jesus is showing compassion to their so-called enemies. He's healing, but he's not judging all these people. And it caused John, who grew up in that culture, grew up in that whole kind of system of the Jewish Messiah, probably was wondering, is this really him? Like he's not doing what we expected him to do. And frequently the combination of wrong expectations and difficult circumstances come together to surface our doubts. I mean, let's be honest. Wouldn't we all find it easier to like a God who met all of our expectations? We might like a God like that, but we'd never worship a God like that. Because if that was true, it really would be making us God. If God only met our expectations, we've essentially declared ourselves God, and God is just a tool to accomplish what we want. So how do we address doubts when they come up in our lives? How does Jesus address them in John's life here? And I think he sets a great example for us and teaches us something as he addresses the doubts uh, in life of John in this scenario. So as we continue in verse 21, it says, in that hour, meaning when these disciples came to Jesus at that time, it says he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't just come out and, and answer their question directly. He doesn't just say, yes, of course I'm the Messiah. He doesn't just self-proclaim himself at that moment. That's interesting because if you've followed any kind of cults or watched that, many people who profess to be a Messiah-like figure, that's exactly how they do it. They just self-proclaim themselves and they use fear and misuse scripture to try to manipulate people and get them to believe that. And, and we'll see much more of that as times go on. Many more people will continue to come to play, you know, proclaim themselves as that prophet or that Messiah and self-proclaim themselves. And Jesus, who could have done that, doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he points John back to the truth. You see, Jesus is the true word of God, and not just what he says is true, everything that's ever been written about him has been inspired by him, so it authenticates him as well. He points John and his disciples to the things he's doing, and he challenges John because he knows, John knows the prophecies about him, and he said, he's basically saying, am I doing the things that Scripture said I would be doing? And he points John back to the Word of God. He points him to the truth and allows John to make the conclusion himself. 
I love this. We'll get in, in, in Isaiah 26. We'll look at several of these prophecies that John would have been very familiar with. Isaiah 26, verse 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah is talking about what that new kingdom will look like. And he says, the dead will live, their bodies shall rise. And Jesus has embodied this. He's accomplished this. He has raised people from the dead. And so you can see a snapshot that in his life and in the works that he's doing, he's fulfilling the very things that would be necessary for the coming Messiah who would bring about these kingdoms, or this kingdom. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall come uh, the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Each of these things that are talked about in that coming kingdom, what would happen? Jesus is the only prophet who's ever performed all these miracles. He points John back to these prophecies and said, what does the scripture say about that coming one? Isaiah 61, what Jesus read in the synagogue, uh, just, you know, we see that a couple chapters earlier. He said of himself, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's exactly what Jesus did here. It's exactly what he points John back to. Everything he did and modeled and showed them, he said, John, go back and look at the truth of what you know. And what does it say about me? Jesus addresses doubt by encouraging John to seek the truth. That's how we address doubt in our lives, by seeking the truth, going after what we need to be true. You see, John needed truth to confront his doubts, not assurance of his own expectations. Sometimes we can just feel like we got to come along and assure someone of their expectations. The problem with that is, is we don't know that our expectations are true. And by just simply assuring someone of their expectations can only set them up to be further disappointed. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't assure John, don't worry, I'm going to get to you. Uh, you'll be released. Instead, he points them back to the truth and encourages him. See, a common error that we have in facing doubts today in general in our world is this statement of, hey, just stay positive. Like when you're doubting, just, just stay positive. That's all you got to do. And, and in our Christian world, we have our own kind of version of it. We just say, hey, you just got to have enough faith. If you just have enough faith, then things are going to work out the way you want them to work out. But are we really willing to say that John the Baptist was beheaded because he didn't have enough faith? or he just wasn't positive enough about what his circumstances were gonna end up as? Are we willing to say that about the majority of the disciples who were pretty much martyred for the sake of Jesus? Was it really because they lacked faith or they weren't positive enough about their outcomes and it resulted in their situations? 
Are we willing to say that many people who lost their jobs or lost loved ones in this pandemic is really the result of just a lack of faith? Or they just weren't positive enough in this scenario and now they find themselves where they are? I don't think any of us would say that. Sometimes we can think that way. It's certainly not what Jesus calls us to. He always encourages us in the midst of doubt to seek the truth. And even when that truth is difficult to hear, when the truth aligns with our reality, there is an element of courage and even encouragement that comes with us because Jesus is telling us exactly what is happening. And it reminds us that he truly is who he said he is. You see, the best cure for confronting our doubts is the truth. And we have just as many wrong expectations today as they had back then and oftentimes can find ourselves in the same scenario. We frequently think that God owes us an easier life when we choose to follow him. But why do we think that? Where does that truth really come from? You see, Jesus challenges us, and he challenges John, with this last little sneaky verse at the end of this section we just read, when he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus offends people. If you've read this book at all, it'll offend you uh, what you're being asked to do at times because of our wrong expectations. He doesn't give us always what we want. He gives us what we need. And he calls us to something bigger and greater than this world. I look at some of these passages that I think that speak to this. Again, some of these are written or spoken by Jesus. Some of them are inspired by him because this whole book is inspired by him. But James chapter 1 speaks one truth that, that encourages us in the midst of these situations when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God wants our growth. He wants our maturity more than he wants our comfort. He tells us that. And guess what? Easy circumstances never grow you up. When we understand that, we're better able to walk with courage, with hope, with a little less doubt at times. But doubts often are surfaced when we're in circumstances that surface our wrong expectations and cause us to think about things that maybe aren't as true as we think. John 16, Jesus said this to us, I have said these things to you that in me, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promises us it's going to be difficult. This would be a great memory verse to have on your mirror right when you get up in the morning. We usually like more things like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
right? A more positive one. But even that verse, if you read it in its context, is Paul talking about an incredibly difficult circumstance he's going through. And he's saying, I can go through this difficult circumstance through Christ who strengthens me. We twist it out of its context. Jesus reminds us this world is not going to be pleasing or easy for us when we walk according to his plan. Luke 9, we're going to get to this in several weeks, but Jesus says this about his disciples. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Difficulty and unmet expectations can either trip us up or they can confirm the truth and reality of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. He allows them into our lives to grow us up and to cause us to look to something that's more secure than where we often anchor our lives. See, our response to difficult circumstances or our unmet expectations are usually the means by which our offenses of Jesus are surfaced. We find out how he offends us by how we respond when we're in those moments. Like being treated fairly or justly, like especially as Americans who value those things almost more than we value Jesus, maybe. But being treated fairly and justly when you obey Jesus does not make you more like Jesus. Makes you very American, but it doesn't make you more like Jesus. When you respond from being mistreated and experiencing injustice, and when you act justly instead, that's what makes you more like Jesus. In fact, Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, an incredibly challenging passage. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Think about that. We've been called to be a people who when we're wrongly treated, when we're mistreated, we respond with kindness and grace and justice in spite of it. Because that's the gospel. That's what's been done for us. The world responds like those other ways. We have something that's totally otherworldly. In fact, he says we've been called to that because Christ also suffered for you unjustly, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Difficult circumstances, unmet expectations surface those things in our life that offend us about Jesus. This is part of that. You want to know something that brings greater glory to God than any singing or worship or Bible study that we could ever do? It's trusting God in the midst of difficulty and suffering. John Piper says it like this in his book called Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, loss and suffering, joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God, shows the supremacy of God's worth more clearly in the world than all worship and prayer. 
You see, what we're willing to sacrifice or suffer the most for is what we value the most. It always is. Whatever we're willing to go after the hardest, whatever we're willing to give up the most in order to acquire or achieve is what we value or worship the most. Jesus is our ultimate example. Better yet, he's our perfect substitute. Where we often blow it, where each time we surface doubts and each time we find ourselves in a different, difficult circumstance or an unmet expectation, it surfaces another area of our life where we're clinging to the gods of this world and Jesus is kindly but firmly pulling them from our hands and reminding us of how fragile and frail they are and of the great and incredible worth of him. Not just should we think about these things, we should, we should in our doubts to turn our eyes back to Jesus, look back to the truth, look at who he is, look at what he did, and not just his miracles that he did, although you should look at those. Recognize he can turn any circumstance in a moment, 180 degrees. He raises the dead, he gives sight to the blind, he heals the sick, he casts out the demons from those who are demon-possessed. He has the power to do that. In any circumstance you might face, he can rectify it in the moment and will someday with just a spoken word. So don't not look at those, but in the midst of our difficulties here, that alone isn't your only hope. The fact that he walked through whatever we face himself should encourage us and remind us that we don't walk through these trials by ourselves. He took the suffering and injustice he experienced on our behalf. He was unjustly treated so that we wouldn't have to be justly judged. He did that for you and for me. Whatever situation you may be walking through, whatever unmet expectation, whatever difficult circumstance, look at Jesus. He has walked through it in a much more deep way for you and for me to point us to hope, to let us know that no matter how dark it might get this side of heaven, even if your head ends up on a platter like John the Baptist, it's okay. In fact, if that's the case, you have not only accomplished your greatest mission of showing that Jesus is worth your very life, but you have moved the remainder of the church to see the value and glory of Jesus Christ. Many historians will say that the church was built on the blood of the martyrs. People who gave their life for Jesus Move people to recognize there is something about Jesus that's worth more than anything you could grasp in this world. And John did that for you and I. He worked through his doubts. He looked back to Jesus and he finished well. And he passes that on to you and I. His story is written for you and I. And we see Jesus 
more fully for who he is, when we see more clearly what he has done for us, it moves us to hold this life more loosely. It challenges us and it frees us to expect less of this world and hope more in the one that is to come. So where do you find yourself doubting Jesus today? Can you have that honest conversation with yourself? Can you even open that up to others around you? I love the fact, and I think there's a simple principle even in this story that's so beautiful about John, is when John doubts, look where he takes it. He takes his doubt right to Jesus. Like, wouldn't that be a little bit embarrassing to, to, I mean, he's his cousin, he's been preaching him his whole time, but he had so much confidence in, hey, I just want to know the truth. He takes his doubt right to Jesus himself. Can you do that? Can you be honest enough to take your doubts to him and even some friends who will maybe help you bring your doubts to Jesus? What wrong expectations or difficult circumstances have taken your eyes off the beauty and truth of Jesus today? I want to encourage you to remember doubt is a common experience for every believer, even the very best believers that Scripture offers us. You are in good company. But I also want to challenge you to take those doubts to the truth. Lean in to Jesus. He is more than capable of handling your doubts, and he will both comfort you and correct you in the best possible way so that you might finish and walk your life with him faithfully. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this truth. Thank you that you don't just uh, share all these great, warm, fuzzy stories of victory in Scripture, but you also reveal these moments um, of doubt, of discouragement, of questions, of just the reality of what every one of us will face when we choose to follow you, Jesus. Thank you for John's example Thank you that you recorded it for us. But Lord, I pray um, that you would just minister to each one of us here today. Because no doubt in a, a church this size, there are many people who are walking through some very challenging doubts right now. And they may not be comfortable sharing them. They may not want to talk about them. They certainly may not want to share them with others, much less bring them up with you. But may they see that you are ready for them. And even how important it is to share their doubts with others who will help them take them to you. Lord, let us be a church who presses into our doubts so that we might more faithfully walk with you even amidst the challenges that may come our way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.